Hello, my geeselings. It's Mother Goose Robinson with the introduction to episode 35 of Robinson's podcast. And if you're watching the video, I'm wrangling pins as usual, who's causing mischief. But this episode is with Barry Lamb, who is the host of the podcast Hi-Fi Nation, which you'll hear plenty about it during the episode, but it's a phenomenal show. Uh, I'm not going to say any more than that, other than definitely check it out. So Barry did his graduate work at Princeton. He was then a professor at Vassar and is now going to UC Riverside. Congratulations to Barry. And in this episode, we mainly talk about his show. And in particular, we talk about a series. He did a three-part series with Christina Van Dyke of Columbia, uh, in this past season, season five, and it's on monsters and philosophy. So there's one on zombies, there's one on cannibals, there's one on vampires. And I, in addition to being a philosophy person, am a big fantasy person. So I really loved those episodes and really loved getting to talk to Barry about them. But we also talk about what it's like to do public philosophy when you're in academia. We talk about David Lewis. He had a great series on David Lewis. We talk a bit about what's to come. Uh, season six is going to be about philosophy and the future. And it was all in all just a great conversation. Uh, I learned a lot because we also talked a bit about podcasting and Barry gave me some tips, but I think they're fun even to listen to for non-podcasters. And with all that being said, I hope you really enjoy this episode as much as I did because it was a special one. A big fan of the podcast Hi-Fi Nation that you host and produce. I've actually I've listened to all five seasons. Let me put the logo in view right there. <laughs> there okay, we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I've listened to all five seasons. Uh, I'm looking forward to the sixth season. And my show is very different from yours in that yeah. it is not particularly ambitious. And it's also in, in that it's it's not a narrative. There's no real writing that goes into it. Uh, it's not highly produced. And I mean, yours is super ambitious because I think you do pretty much all of it yourself, right? I do. I do. People don't believe that, but it's been that way since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, I, I mean, I think it's better than like NPR produced podcasts as far as the production value goes. It's uh, Oh, really no, great. that's. That's that's a little too far. You know, those shows have teams of at least four, and some uh -huh. of the other more popular shows have teams of like 20, you know? Well, I prefer so. it maybe because it's, I mean, slightly more minimalist than theirs. But mm -hmm. what I'm curious about is in a world where academia doesn't particularly reward public philosophy, and at least on a general level, the population doesn't know too much or as far as I can tell, care too much about academic analytic philosophy. What prompted you to start this show? Uh, well, everything that you're describing is why I started the show. Uh, you know, okay. in a world, yeah, in a world where that's all true, and I agree with you. Like, why shouldn't it? Why shouldn't they? Right. So, so it's it's a kind of like it's kind of like um, so. Uh, I'm old enough to remember a time when econ wasn't cool, 
right? Like it wasn't like a thing that kids were like, parents were telling kids that they have to major in or kids were in high school and thinking, oh, great. There's like this econ class. That's a requirement. But sometime around the 2000s, sort of around when Freakonomics was published, but it wasn't just Freakonomics as a book that was published. There was a whole phenomenon behind that. Econ kind of reinvented itself. And all of a sudden, everybody cared about it, right? It's like the fastest growing major for like a decade and a half now, I think, right? And um, it's one of the social sciences where when people major in it, nobody in the outside world thinks, like, what are you going to do with that? Right. Mm -hmm. And so forth. And the same was true of certain other fields, I think, in academia. Um, and so I thought at the time, why not philosophy? And in particular, why not the kind of philosophy that I kind of grew up on? Not really, not grew up, but, you know, grew old, grew into <laughs> sure. you know, in college because nobody really reads that stuff when they're little. Um, so um, the thing about whether academia doesn't uh, reward it, that was just all true and that's something that i hope is changing but in terms of like the public not really knowing about it um i i saw it as an opportunity um nobody had ever done anything like let's do something documentary like with philosophy because philosophy is more lends itself more to like you and me sitting here talking about it and like mm -hmm. that's traditionally how it's been you know like plato wrote dialogues for a reason right it's really a bunch of people uh sitting around talking and that's great for the podcasting format but i thought that there was something more stylized that was more more um that's better for listeners who aren't familiar with things so like if you actually know nothing about finance right and then there's all this stuff like yield curves and uh and long-term versus short-term interest rates you're like who cares right but in the context of you know 2007 2008 when those things all of a sudden were connected to things people really felt then you know, shows like Planet Money or Freakonomics Radio were able to, you know, blow up and um, and in inform the public in very technical matters. And I thought, there's no reason why philosophy can't do that, right? It's not like, okay, some of the stuff that we talk about is not connected at all. But a lot of it is, right? Even really abstract stuff like metaphysics is connected to a lot of what people like to think about nowadays, surprisingly, like multiverses and world building and Mm -hmm. and uh and virtual people and you know that kind of stuff and so there's no reason why you know philosophy is such a large vast field that somebody couldn't take you know a documentary style approach to it like look for stories in the world journalistically and connect it to philosophical things that people were thinking about and talking about and so i took it as a challenge really the, I, I approached it as a challenge and then when it came to um the academic you know it's not rewarded in academia. It's not recognized in academia. That's true, except that I haven't really been drummed out of academia as a result of what I've been doing. Um, quite the opposite. You know, what's what's really weird and the thing that was least expected is when I started, I thought, oh, I'm going to have a, a ticket out. Like I have these other skills now that I can do and then it'll be, you know, like attractive to public radio. But then I learned it's actually not that great in public radio. <laughs> or like professional podcasting. And then in academia, I was getting uh. grants and I was getting recognition. And then this past year I got a job offer and then I took it, you know, like it, I, that was not something that anybody, um, I, I wouldn't have thought that that would be true. And I, if anything, I thought the opposite would be true. And so what I saw out of that was that, um, 
as disillusioned I was with academia, it actually turns out that you can make people start caring about things in academia in a way that um, I didn't thought was think was true before. So like if you decide to trailblaze in a certain way, then you could very well get the attention of, you know, some people, a department, a dean or something. And then I'm, and then in, in my case, it was grant makers, you know, people who have money and want to fund something. And in this case, and what I'm doing now is like, I'm trying to pay it forward. You know, I'm trying to like see where there are, there's money to be um, gotten and give it all out to people who want to do something. Not exactly like I'm doing, but you know, there are people who want to do something like this for magazines, for something for newspapers, something for YouTube, you know, or something. And mm -hmm. uh, maybe there's a trailblazer there that wants to do that and like make academia care. Yeah. No, that's that's funny that you mention econ because, well, you chose a good example because I had always thought that econ was this stalwart in academia and had always been one of the most popular majors. So it's not true. It's not yeah. True. I hadn't yeah. realized that. So the next thing that I was going to ask, because I was wondering as I was listening, was why you chose to structure the show as a narrative. Uh, and it seems like you had a pedagogical reason. I mean, you think it's easier uh, to engage on an, well, philosoph philosophically unsophisticated listeners uh, with, with that sort of program. Um, is it also just part of satisfying a more creative drive? Is that also part it's, of why you did it? I would say that most of the psychological motivation, like if you had to peer into my head, it was what you just described, right? I, I needed to do something that was more creative for myself than writing papers, right? And talking about philosophy in a freeform format was a continuation of that you know like it, it those people those who don't know you know like if you get a bunch of philosophers together they very quickly you know like <laughs> evolve into like you know i mean like it's like it's, it almost sounds like a caricature but it really isn't like if you've been around conversation it's kind of like like um what if the alien uh spoke two languages one of which which was twin english and then you're just like <laughs> off to nobody knows what the hell you're talking about already right mm -hmm. like very quickly oh, yeah. it's like in a matter of like 2 3 minutes right i mean funny i was um sorry uh, i was in a i was in a i was at a dinner the other day the other week and um there were a bunch of philosophers and a bunch of non-philosophers and the philosophers started talking about whether god occupies space or whether he like like and if he occupies space, does he have a shape at a certain space? And you know, like very quickly, it just becomes about this weird metaphysical question of a, what it takes to occupy a to occupy b or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And it, and and it's um, uh, that is something that was around that predated me, right? Like in philosophy podcasts, and then what predated me were like lecture style, someone who sat around and wrote a lecture. And if I did that, I could turn out a lot more content, honestly. Um, but, you know, it, it wouldn't have fulfilled that drive. But you're right. It also was true for pedagogical reasons in the following way. I think of programs like the ones you've I've just talked about as being for people who are already inclined 
and attracted to think and listen to people talk in that way. And I really do think that that's, I don't know, 1% of people. It might be very big. It might be, sorry, that's digital spiking here. It might be bigger than my, the, the, the audience for my show, but it's still like a certain kind of, um, a certain kind of thinker. And I'm a strong believer in cognitive diversity. <laughs> like mm -hmm. people think and come to information very differently. I've noticed that with mediums too. There are people who never listen to a podcast, right? Like, oh, I don't do that. I don't listen to that. Like, why? Like, I it, it takes up so much of my time. I don't understand. Um, but they say they only read stuff. And then there are other people who can't, who like take their news by audio. So for me, what I was convinced of in 2015-ish when I started this was the medium of audio and in particular, the form audio storytelling was what I wanted to integrate with philosophy, precisely because storytelling as a, as a form was never integrated very well with philosophy since Plato, I guess, right? I mean, like, that was, I mean, I, I you know, you're a philosophy student, like, what's the last person who did a lot of narrative-like stuff with their philosophy? Plato was it, wasn't it? I have no idea. That's right. I mean, I think there there are literary figures, obviously, yeah. who write philosophically, but it's not quite the same. That's right. And um, and so I was um, really taken in by the way that the narrative form, so having a character, having a plot, having uh, twists and turns, having stakes in a right, um, was able to hold people's attention regardless of whether they were interested in an issue. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you might not be particularly interested in um you know real estate financing <laughs> but it's a very compelling narrative how the bottom dropped out of the housing market in 2007 and 8 right um you might not be particularly interested in the metaphysics of names but you might be interested in the story of larisha hawkins who was fired for um claiming that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, right? And then you might suddenly think like, well, now you're open to a discussion of the various names that various religions give to God and whether that can refer to the same individual, fictional or real. And that's mm -hmm. something philosophers have talked about for like at least a hundred years, if not longer, right? Mm -hmm. So that I foresaw that there was a way to do that. And I thought that it didn't exist and I wanted to give myself the challenge to do it. Got it. Yeah. I, the, the pedagogical or the pedagogy question comes to me because I was thinking about how I would edit my program and whether or not I would edit it at all. And I decided that I probably, I like learning from these conversation uh, type recordings just because I get to hear people waffling about topics. Sorry about the cat. Waffling oh, yeah. about oh. topics, um, going back and forth. And you really get to hear more of the, I mean, the motivations behind the ultimate positions that people uh, fall into. And that, I guess, suits my form of cognitive diversity. Yeah, uh, well. yeah. I, I, I think that um, that's true of a lot of people. Like, you know, it's it's not 
true anymore that the narrative form is the preferred form for people consuming information. The kind of that you're describing is actually more popular now, right? Like there are people who actually like sitting for three hour, four hour podcasts where people are um, delving deep into something. So another reason, I mean, I'm going to admit this now, uh, I think I've admitted it elsewhere, but that I chose this format is I don't think I have a particularly attractive personality for that. Like when when I look at radio and podcasts and I look at some of those um, popular host-driven shows, I call them host-driven because it really is the personality of the person that brings somebody in, right? Like, and I'm not going to name names, but we all know that there are some, you know, mega popular things. And it's not necessarily that the host has some expertise that nobody else has, right? And it's not particularly that the host is necessarily funnier than anybody else or anything like that right but it's still true that people are attracted to the personality of that host Mm -hmm. and they want to hang out with that person and so whoever that person gets on to talk about they're going to be interested and you know just just to admit it to myself like i don't think i had that right but what did i have i did have patience editing skills and 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 a kind of ear for story and just the drive to like be able to to go out into the world and talk to, you know, the woman who claimed she was the reincarnation of Anne Frank or, mm-hmm. you, you know, right. Or like sit around in Skid Row in Los Angeles and follow activists who are protesting against um, automated policing, you know, or something like that. Like that I can do. That was an interesting um, episode, by the way. Very good. Yeah. One. Thank you. But, but being, you know, cool to people, like, I don't know. I've never had that. Yeah, I guess I have to, you've made a good case for me uh, working on my personality, I guess. Uh, (laughs) But, okay, well, actually, before we talk about some episodes, just very quick question. Uh, Tool of the trade, your your audio is is great. What mic are you using? Oh, I I use the Shure SM7B. Um, Okay. It's it's the go-to mic. I've been thinking about changing it up, but, you know, I mean, I think you have a Shure, that's the karaoke mic, isn't it? Oh no, that's uh, a that's a USB mic, isn't it? Yeah, this is the ATR twenty one hundred X USB mic. Oh, okay, mic. yeah. Um, so that's the Shure SM seven B is my studio mic, and then my travel mic is this one, which is the Audio Technica eight hundred three five. Um, and so most of the earlier seasons pre COVID, when I was able to go out and face to face with people, it's on this mic, and I actually think this mic sounds better. Oh. Um, but it's a but this is a you know, it's a, like a condenser mic. So, um, anyways. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm going to look into the, the seven B, but the, the episodes actually that jumped out at me most, maybe just because they're the ones that I listened to most recently, since they were in uh, season five are the, the series on monsters. And that's something that, I mean, even though we use thought experiments involving monsters or aliens speaking twin English all the time, it's probably it's hard to devote a, a career to writing papers on monsters. So I can see how this uh, you get to explore some uh, philosophical topics quite creatively. And what in particular prompted the the three part series on monsters? Great question. And the answer to that question is I was pitched that um, I had because of the pandemic and the stage of that it was at. Uh, very little 
time because I was chair of the department and teaching to actually get a lot of tape and do a lot of research for stories. And I had all of this David Lewis tape. And so I was going to make that four-part series on David Lewis, which I did uh, last 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 season. And then uh, I had a few others, but then I needed like whatever it was, three or four other episodes. And Christina Van Dyke, who's a medievalist, and she's at Columbia at the moment, um, she was also, she had a little bit of time on her hands at that time, and she contacted me and she says, look, as a medievalist, what I'm really interested in is in monsters. Because like, what's really interesting to them about, to me about them is like, when you read like Aquinas, or you read a lot of the medievals, they cared a lot about cannibals, they cared a lot about uh, the devil, they cared a lot about um you know, eventually, like, people cared about vampires. There was, like, a lot of stuff that was, you know, in an era where there wasn't a sharp distinction between natural and supernatural, a lot of philosophical questions were um, raised by the supernatural, mm -hmm. right? Because if you thought that, if you gave it, if you were serious about the supernatural, you started thinking about how it's possible and how it's real. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... I actually was just, I was at Columbia before I came to Stanford. So I just, I just missed uh, Christina Van Dyke, but I actually reached out to her because I would love to talk to her as well. But I was, I had an episode with a friend of mine that was not particularly philosophical, but we were talking about uh, zombies and in your, I'm not sure if it was your episode on zombies or not with uh, Christina, but she mentions that it's useful to think about what the monster represents that's frightening to us. And in talking about zombies, I totally thought that everybody just thought the scary, the scary thing about zombies was that they overwhelm you, like you're you're trapped, and then there are just hundreds of them. There's nothing that you can do, and they're going to sort of close in on you and suffocate you. But my friend that I was talking to that was a, a secondary concern for him. His concern was being bitten by a zombie and then becoming a zombie. And yeah. I mean, it's you talked about it. Yeah, yeah, it's becoming, you, yeah. You yeah. talked about that a bit. So why should it be frightening to become a zombie or why shouldn't it be? Because it, it, that didn't even occur to me. Yeah, the different kinds of zombies raise different kinds of anxieties and it could vary between people, right? So a classic zombie uh, in the Haitian tradition is somebody who is conscious but lacks will, free will, right? And so they are actually trapped inside. Oh, really? While yeah, while their will is taken over and uh, um and are under the control of the um the the shaman or the medicine man, right? Or the bokor, the bokor. Uh, and so that zombie is, um, and so the 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 fear comes from the idea of watching yourself and experiencing the physical nature of yourself doing things against your own will right and um and that i could you could understand <laughs> like being afraid of yeah um but what you don't lose is conscious experience in that on that model the zombie in the philosophical tradition is a being that lacks conscious like they don't there is nothing that it's like to be a zombie right so it's a it lacks consciousness completely um so you you'd have to you know th that's all under specified in film right in in uh so in film uh there's a way of understanding the zombie in the classical haitian sense um but 
you know, in the classical Haitian sense, they're not undead either, right? In film, they are they're supposed to be dead bodies. And I'm not sure whether or not there's something it's like to be a zombie in film. I, I mean, this isn't a, a question that we'll get a, a, a definitive answer on, but I have the sense that in most movies, like I 28 days later where they get the rage virus, they're not undead, so that's a little different, but I have the sense yeah. that it's somewhat like being uh, a rabid dog or a, a dog in general. You just have less cognitive functions than a typical human. You're really just thinking about food. Uh, but is that not how you, you see most film zombies? You think of them? I don't as... know. I don't okay. know. I don't know how to think about it, but it really speaks to where, what you're supposed to be fearing and whether that fear is appropriate or rational fear. So in the philosophical literature, there's a big debate about this from in the seventies about, um, rational fear in, um, the theories of personal identity, right? So, for instance, like there, there were there were a lot of there was a lot of discussion about whether you should be afraid that you're going to be tortured after your memories are wiped, right? And then the idea was supposed to be, well, if you're afraid of that torture, that means you think you will still experience the torture, even though your memories would be wiped. In which case, you don't think that you are what your memories are, right? Yeah. Like, you're not uh -huh. the same. Though there was a big debate about that. And I think that's relevant here in the case of zombies. If you are afraid of what experiences would be like after you're bitten by a zombie, then that's different than being afraid of dying because the zombie bit you. But if you, but that's just fear of dying. Like, we're afraid of dying too what happens to your body after it dies is who cares you're not you, you can care about it now but you're not going to be afraid on behalf of the body so like if i died normally and somebody said after your death we're going to beat your body up with a baseball bat you're not going to be like oh ouch right i mean you might say that but you're not going to be really afraid of that um, in the case of zombies there's this like question right do you think are you afraid of what it's going to be like after the zombie bites you? And if the answer is yes, then you're attributing consciousness to the body that you're in. And not only are you attributing consciousness to it, you're actually identifying with that consciousness, right? You're actually saying, I am going to experience, you know, being the zombie. And that's what I fear. And that, if that's true, if that's what your friend is afraid of, if that's what people are afraid of in the case of zombies, then they get they really got to ask themselves, right? right? So really, you're you're thinking that you can some fundamental essence of you survives being bitten by a zombie and is in fact experiencing certain things as a zombie, mm -hmm. um, and that's fascinating if that's true. Uh, in the case of philosophical zombies like Chalmers zombies, those zombies really don't experience anything, right? So like if that's what happens to you after you get bitten then it really would be an unreasonable fear, wouldn't it? Could, could you explain what a, I don't think you said what a philosophical zombie is. Sure. Yet. A philosophical zombie is something that doesn't have any consciousness at all, right? So mm -hmm. there's nothing that it's like to, it doesn't have experiences. On the outside, it might do things consistent with having experiences, right? right. So Chalmers' zombies are zombies 
that are supposed to act just like us, but don't have any experiences. So you might think a really good AI chatbot that was put into a really good robot would be a philosophical zombie, right? Mm -hmm. So so you're interacting with it. It looks kind of like a real person and talks like a real person and acts like a real person, but it actually turns out that there's nothing there except text input and generated outputs, right? There's It doesn't experience anything. Yeah, I think the interesting questions though come when you imagine a philosophical zombie who is physiologically indistinguishable from yeah. you or I. No, that's right. And so um, those, as far as I'm told by biologists are, um, we haven't found them yet, but like there's there are phenomena in nature. There are zombies in nature, right? There are zombified animals because of a fungal infection or some other kind of parasite that, um, but they are kind of distinguishable in behavior. Yeah. They're not right. distinguishable, but but you could, it's it's a it's a pretty easy thing to imagine. That's why Chalmers became famous, right? Because right. like he says, like it's actually quite very easy to imagine what it's like to have something that really is indistinguishable physiologically from us, but isn't conscious. I'm not sure. I I think I I read something Dan Dennett wrote in response to this uh, some many many years ago, but he. I'm sorry if I'm I'm butchering Dan's uh, opinion, but it was that this is almost like not it's it's almost like worrying or trying to imagine a square circle, like you're you're assuming already with this picture that consciousness is not something physiological and that it just is what our brains are. Maybe it's it's kind of like it's like saying what's fire. Or can you imagine fire that's not hot? And it's like, well, that just is sort of what fire is like. The limitations on what we can imagine and what we can conceive are still poorly understood and uh, poorly understood enough so that we shouldn't have, you know, really, really high confidence when we do philosophy and say, because I can imagine this, this, this follows, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not going to be conclusive like that. It's not a, it's not a, deductively valid and sound argument. There's some questionable premises there. So yes, I, I agree. Like we, we, we need to understand better what the limits of imagination are. Like there are lots of clever examples in philosophy of people saying, no, you're, you're claiming to imagine that, but you're not really imagining it. You're thinking you mm -hmm. imagine it, but you're not really imagining it. Right. I think Dennett had another response to the Mary in the white room thought experiment. Uh, to that effect, where the Mary in the White Room thought experiment, for people who don't know, is uh, from Frank Jackson. And the question is, so you have this uh, woman who lives in a white room. She's a color scientist. She has all of the physical facts uh, there, there are to know about color. Uh, but of course, she's never seen color because she lives in this white room. Now, when she leaves the white room and sees the color red for the first time, does she learn something? And namely what it's like to see the color red. And most people's intuitive response to that is, of course, she learned something new because you can't learn what it's like to see red from reading it, uh, reading facts out of a book. But I think Dan Dennett's response is something like you're really underestimating what it like, what it's what it could possibly mean to have all of the possible yeah. physical information about something. There's a. Yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to Dennett's concerns. You know, 
forget about imagination for a second. We know from visual illusions that people can see certain things to be possible that aren't, right? Like Escher diagrams or weird paradoxical drawings. And it looks like it's possible to have a eternally ascending staircase, right? <laughs> I mean, if it looks possible, then like it could be easily, some a person could easily be, be deceived into thinking that it is possible. Like you're looking right at it, right? So like just yeah. build what you're seeing. Um, so, so we know about that in the case of, in the perceptual case. Uh, in the case of imagination, you, you, you might draw the, you might draw a parallel argument. You can say if it's so easy to be taken in by a hidden, like by, by thinking something's possible when it really isn't by looking, the things that you're being asked to imagine in the philosophical thought experiments, way more complicated than looking at an Escher uh, you know, thing like or looking at an illusory, like looking at an illusory thing, is like, I mean, it's one visual. It's within your visual field, right? Just like you could see it all at once. With the imagining whether Mary learns something, keeping uh, fixed all of the stipulations, right? Um, do you understand every last aspect of the stipulation? Right. So like Dennett's point is like, do you understand what it is to know everything on the about color on the basis of mm -hmm. reading it? Like just like what are you keeping in your mind? Right. Right. I, at least with the visual thing, you can actually point <laughs> and say, this is what I'm keeping in my mind all at once. So there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a good point to that. Um, philosophical thought experiments can be quite complex things. I'm not a skeptic about them, though. Right? So I don't gen generally think we know nothing on the basis of them. There are some people who think that. But, you know, epistemic modesty, right? Um, the conclusions that you draw from such thought experiments are not as firm mm -hmm. as, uh, and that, you know, Frank Jackson's credit, you know, Frank Jackson is as skeptical about that argument that he made years ago as uh, as he anybody else's well i think that talking about the limits of imagination naturally leads us into uh, the next creature i wanted to discuss which was vampires but before we yeah. get into the maybe the philosophical concerns about vampires one of the things that i mean is great about your show is that it's not necessarily all philosophical there's plenty of things that really that i mean draw me in as a listener uh, that don't have to do with uh, quotes from obscure analytic papers. Right. And one of the things was that I was astonished to hear that there are real vampires yeah. in some respect. I mean, uh, psychic and traditional. So yeah. could you tell me a bit more about your experience with the with these vampires? Well, I haven't had any experience, but I talked to somebody who has a lot of experience with them. Um, so real vampires are people who have a felt, we'll call it phenomenological need, right? So we don't know if it's physiological, right? But uh, they, they have a felt need to periodically consume the blood by mouth of, let's say, other humans, but sometimes animals as well, uh, or their psychic energy, <laughs> Uh, as they put it. Uh, and if they don't do this, they feel very weak. They even have 
changes that occur um, with their body and so forth. Uh, doctors, scientists have studied them. They've been in the literature. They've been around for a long time. They're kind of a um, subculture in, in urban areas where they get together. Uh, and they get together and um, and solicit volunteers who will allow the vampires to cut them open and consume their blood um, mm-hmm. when needed. And yeah, that's where they are. Yeah, that's crazy. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, more more philosophically yeah. uh, motivated is L.A. Paul's book on transformative experience. And I, when I read that book or think about the question it comes down to imagination for me but maybe we'll get back to that but so what is a transformative experience and why i mean it's pretty natural that you you chose this as your centerpiece for vampires but how are the two yeah well laurie did and laurie paul did and i just um this you know the second segment really is just a uh an explication of laurie's book uh, which is she chose vampires as one example, an imaginary example, um, but turns out not really imaginary because like there are actual vampires mm-hmm. <laughs> um, where, where uh, you are confronted with a decision to become something else where that something else is not something that you can imagine being like now. Mm-hmm. And being a vampire is Laurie's example, her opening example, which is if you were offered the choice to become a vampire, you can weigh the costs and benefits of it. But what you can't really do is know what it's like to be a vampire mm-hmm. when you become one ahead right. of time. Right. And so, really, when you make that change, it's transformative in that not only do you not know what it's like now, but when you be, but as the vampire, right? You can't really then go, oh, that's exactly what I wanted or whatever, because you could say that, but like you are now so different from what you were before. So it's not like you really can compare the experiences of what you're like now with like the experiences before and right. determine now that you're rash, you were like made the right choice or anything like that. I don't recall whether or not it was you or Christina Van Dyke or Lori Paul, but somebody uh, brought in the Twilight series, and yeah, that yeah. example yeah, made it yeah. very cl- very clear for me. So, um, Edward is the vampire. Bella is his human girlfriend, and she really wants to become a vampire, but he won't let her because, or he he resists this because he knows how terrible it is, but she can't possibly know, and so she can't rationally make that decision and in fact she's irrationally making trying to make it just based on her infatuation for him yeah and and laurie thinks that there are a lot of real world examples and people have Mm -hmm. contended with her particular ones like she claimed that having a child is like this becoming a parent and i don't doubt that that's what it was like for laurie of course a lot of parents have since said well it's nothing like that um right i read elizabeth Harmon's paper on that topic uh she she was one of the people who responded to la paul and she believed that or she argued that she knows enough about what it she knew enough about what it was like to be a parent from uh having a much younger sister from getting the testimony of friends and family members 
that she was able to make a rational decision about making a parent. I mean, about becoming a parent and that she had uh, sufficient, sufficient knowledge to do so. Yeah. There, there, there are others in real life examples of this. So I think um, going to war is like this. Uh, I've done a lot of episodes about war and a lot about uh, soldiers going to war. Uh, there's definitely a disconnect between the people who haven't been in war and want to go to war or the people who haven't been in war and don't want to go to war and the people who have been through war. And there really is something very unifying about the community of people who have been in wars and people who haven't. Uh, so that's one example. I, From what everybody reports, uh, certain drugs are this way. So yeah. a lot of people who take psycho psychotropic drugs, particularly ayahuasca and its related um, uh, chemicals, have described the experience as a transformative experience that is not describable in language. Right, it can only be had by the experience itself. People are always trying to convince uh, convince you to do ayahuasca or things like right. that, and I'm yeah. I'm very skeptical. I, I have the <laughs> the feeling that these drugs are somehow infecting people's brains and making them uh, like almost zombified ants or something. They're instructing them to try to get to other spread, people yeah. to take these drugs. Yeah, it sounds yeah. it sounds like the perfect um, Darwinian adaptive mechanism. Mm-hmm. Right. Like Precisely. here is here is a plant that convinces everybody that it's absolutely necessary to consume the plant, thereby mm-hmm. like requiring reproduction of the plant. Right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Have you read uh, much Jorge Luis Borges? When I was in college, but I don't okay. remember a lot of it. Yeah. So there's this story called Pierre Menard, author of the Don Quixote. Do you happen to know that one? I don't. I don't know that one. Okay, so Cervantes or Cervantes naturally is the the actual author of the Don Quixote. But in this story, there's this character that we'll call him the protagonist, Pierre Menard, and he so desperately wants to write the Don Quixote that he gradually sort of sculpts his life uh, so that he can become Cervantes. So he starts living his life exactly as Cervantes does. And, and eventually I think, I mean, it's been a while since I read it, but he, he becomes indistinguishable from Cervantes and then can thus authentically write uh, the Don Quixote as an original piece of work. And this uh, came to mind when I was reading LA Paul's book, because I, I think that uh, she underestimates on some level the the power of human imagination and whether or not we can know what it's like to uh, be certain things. So I happen to be writing some some stories about vampires right now, and I am oh, okay. very convinced that I that I can figure yeah. out what it's like to be a vampire. I mean, if you think about what is called method acting, yeah, yeah, right. That'd be a, another great example of this, right? Like, uh, you can make the case that Daniel Day Lewis has a really strong sense of what it is like to be, you know, Lincoln or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, As much as any human being could possibly know what it's like to be another human being. So then there, there comes the, the third 
of the creatures that you talked about. And this one happened to be the most uh, surprising and interesting to me. Uh, surprising because I didn't know how you were going to make cannibals philosophically <laughs> interesting and then surprising uh, because of the way you did it. So how, how did cannibalism become an interesting philosophical uh, topic for you? Again, uh, thank Christina. Thank Christina. Cannibal, okay. yeah, c cannibals turned out to be a very um, obsessed over topic in Christian theology. And she claims in other theological traditions, I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, uh, just as an aside, in general, there's this thing I like to do on Hi-Fi Nation, which is like start off a topic and people are going to think, oh, he's going to talk about whether it's right or wrong. But then it's nothing about whether something's right or wrong, right? Like it's mm -hmm. not like that episode's about whether cannibalism is good or bad or right or wrong at all, right? It was, so I like the twist, which is that in Christian theology, um, what, what interested me generally is how much metaphysics comes from Christian theology, how much metaphysics in the Western tradition. And in Christian theology, the philosophical issue around cannibals was about the Christian resurrection. If you're committed to the idea that individuals are resurrected in the afterlife and you believe uh, that the tenets of Christianity require you to value the body, um, so that, you know, the reason why you have Jesus on earth is because the body is valuable. The reason why Jesus has to be resurrected is because the body of Jesus is valuable, right? It's kind of like, um, it's important that it's not just a, as we would call it in philosophy, platonic, right? It's like the idea of just a mind or a spirit can ascend to heaven. That um, if you thought both of those things, then you run into a problem of how you resurrect individuals in a world where cannibals exist, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And because cannibals eat other people, and so part of the cannibal is made up of the parts of other people. So if the cannibal gets resurrected in order to be sent to hell, and the victim, who maybe gets sent to heaven, is resurrected as well, there's not enough bits left over, so there are holes in one of the two <laughs> individuals. And... Mm -hmm. That's a specific problem. Like you might call this a metaphysical problem of world building, right? Like if you are, so if, if you're not religious, then you're not going to be taking this as a serious real question, but you can definitely take it as a serious logical question, right? You're writing a story about something and you're building a consistent world. Like you are in Harry Potter or the Avengers universe or something. And all of a sudden you come across this problem which is mm -hmm. in your world, everything gets resurrected and their bodies, yeah. right? And in your world, all of the bodies are made up of material that was consumed by an individual of another, right? With other bodies. So then how do you make resurrect? Oh, and also in your world, the resurrection is timeless, right? So it's not like, like it, one happens first and something happens later or something, right? Like everybody gets their... I think this is true. I'm not sure. I'm not a Christian theologian, but I think like, like everybody comes before God and it's not like one person came in 1640 and the other person comes before God. Like there's not, God's not in time, I think. So if you think all that, then you're but going he, to- does he occupy space? Yes. Does he occupy space and time? Like these are other issues, right? The mm -hmm. metaphysics. And so, and so, so they start thinking about, so that episode's really about what the Christians thought, how they could fit it all together. Right. Mm -hmm. So they try to fit it all together by fixing things. And 
what interested me is that this is all of science and metaphysics too, right? Like sort of the point of metaphysics of science, say, if you're like trying to put together special relativity or quantum mechanics, or the point of like economists, economics is that you're trying to fit together this tenet with this phenomena and this other tenet, like all of like human intellectual activity seems to be like this. Like we have these commitments, we're trying to put them all together. Not all of them fit. Um, and if they do fit, then we have to say really weird things about, you know, the human body and so forth. So that's what interested me in general, like the extent to which really, really smart minds across centuries and centuries were trying to solve what otherwise might be a silly problem, which is how can you resurrect both a cannibal and his victim at the same time? But it's like sort of a, you know, people can find that amusing, except for that's what we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Like period, everywhere. Yeah, I, I like this idea of treating it as a world building problem. Um, that... That's how that's how I think about it as a non-Christian, as a secular person, right? I think it's a I think of a lot of um, I, or I like to explain a lot of philosophical problems to people who aren't interested in the Christian aspect of it, like their their faith doesn't depend on it or something, uh, as a world building problem because world building mm -hmm. is something that is, I think. Um, we're storytellers. We all are. Yeah. yeah. And and I and I and I really do feel that um it's one of those things that defines philosophy. Like people say, what's the definition of philosophy? And I think that's one of them. I don't think it's the only one. But um philosophy is the attempt at consistent world building. Mm. Right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's I mean very much in line with uh David Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's also, though, uh, a very nice, I think, going back to the pedagogy, it's a very nice pedagogical move because it, it makes the non-Christians interested in the topic as well when you treat it this way. It's just a, a, a puzzle that anybody can be interested in solving. Yeah. And, you know, going all the way back to the first season, that's how I thought of the Name of God episode about whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God. In case of Larisha Hawkins, there was a human story, you know, a human being actually got reprimanded for holding a view like that. And it's a theological dispute that will continue long after I'm dead. But it's also precisely a question, if you don't care about the theology or anything, it's, I thought of that as a world building, right? So you have a history where what we would call three different religions have subsumed each other's worlds within their own. And that's just true. Mm -hmm. That's not even, it's not a controversial thesis. Given that that's true, does that commit people to certain things, right? To have a consistent world as told by Islam, to have a consistent world as told by Christianity, to have a Christ consistent world as told by Judaism, must you accept that you have, that if there's one, that if all of them have one God, right, there's a unita, unif, unity to their God, that it doesn't really matter what the word for it is, 
So all of the different words must refer to that same thing. Uh, I think that somebody who's not religious at all can be taken in by that question. Mm-hmm. Right. It's um, it's actually one of the one of the questions that I think I was thinking about as like a four year old or a three or four yeah. year old because my uh, dad's side is Jewish, my mom's side is Lutheran, and then I went to Catholic school. And <laughs> right. each, even though my dad in particular isn't religious, I mean, I I would go to his his parents' house for holidays and. Uh, my mom would make me go to Lutheran Sunday school and we'd have all sorts of religion classes in uh, at Catholic school. And I had these three competing faiths telling me something about like ostensibly the same God. And it was just very confusing. And I thought, well, all three people can't be right. I mean, who's right, but there's no way to really decide that. So it seems more likely that they're all wrong. <laughs> right. I I see young children as being very pure in their philosophical um, judgments. Uh, I see it in my own child as well. And that was a, a very pure <laughs> like um, judgment unencumbered by years and years of indoctrination right mm-hmm. uh so so one of the and we you mentioned it earlier than i mentioned it but aside from the the monster series i think the series or or episodes that jumped out at me most was the the ones considering or concerning david lewis now, is that something that somebody uh, pitched to you or was it because of your affiliation with Princeton or what What brought that one up? Oh, so that's an interesting story. I, that started, it didn't even start as a hyphenation project. During season, I don't remember what it was, three or something like that, uh, or the work up to season three, I was invited down to the Australian National University to spend like eight weeks uh, and I did, uh, to, and I got some tape down there and I made some shows out of it in that trip. I knew from my days at Princeton, I didn't know David Lewis. He passed away the, my first week in graduate school. I knew that he was, uh, wait, wait, sec- wait, um, was that part of the reason you went to Princeton though? Because he was there? Actually, no, actually, okay. no. There were a okay. lot of people who went there because of David Lewis, yeah, that would have uh, been I, a real shock. That would, it was a it was a shock to the people who went there for David Lewis. Um, yeah, I was in the philosophy of science at the time, and I think von Frossen was there, and I think I that's 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 the reason I had gone. Um, but I was finding myself in Australia, and I knew that David made a second home in Australia, and so while I was there, and who knows who knows whether I have a chance to be there again, you know. Uh, I decided that it would be a good idea to collect people's oral histories of David Lewis while they were still alive because all of his friends were getting up there, right? So Frank Jackson and uh, who else? I mean, there were a lot of people down there, Um, students of David Armstrong. I found David Armstrong's niece, and uh, that was uh, fortuitous. It wasn't even like I was looking for her. We were some other event and she says, Oh, I'm David Armstrong's niece, you know? And, um, and, uh, so I thought I, and I thought to do that only because I wanted to make sure we had, uh, accounts 
of his life from the people who were there before they all passed away. So I collected all of that and I kept it. Oh, and then at the end of that summer, Steffi was sick. And so I knew that Steffi wouldn't be around for much David longer. David Lewis's either. wife. David Lewis's wife, Steffi Lewis. So I went to her house and I interviewed her for about three, four hours and collected that tape, you know, and, and, uh, and she, you know, passed away very soon after that. Uh, and so I had all of this tape um, and I, th I thought I was just going to collect it and like put it in archives or something. And then the pandemic hit and I wanted to put down another season of the show and something that I had never done, never thought I would be doing would be biographical nonfiction. <laughs> right? And I thought, Oh, another challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Because like biographical nonfiction is a totally different ball game now, right? Now you're not talking about finding, you know, connecting David Lewis with some movie about time travel or about possible worlds, but like David Lewis's life. Right. And, you know, it's done. So like, you know, John Nash, a beautiful mind is another Princeton based, you know, right. genius worship type film and book. Uh, and so I decided that, okay, here's a good challenge for me. I already have the tape. I can always talk to people who there's a lot of David Lewis scholars out there that know a lot about David Lewis. So I could always talk about the philosophy. So um, that's the inspiration. And so I had the tape and I had, um, you know, connections to Princeton. So I thought, okay, let's just do as many episodes as I think I can do and see what happens because nobody else is talking about David Lewis. Nobody else has a book about him for the general public. There's a lot going on for philosophers. Um, his papers and so forth. Uh, so, so I did that. And, you know, like every, like a lot of things I do, like, I don't know how much it's hit outside of philosophy, but the philosophy world really liked it, I guess. Yeah. I no, I, I really liked it because I, I didn't know anything about him. I knew, I knew the man who wrote about Argle and Bargle and <laughs> time yeah. slices. It was there, uh, any of his work that particularly spoke to you or any of his papers that you really liked uh, discussing his ideas about in the show? In the show. Uh, or outside I have the show. To, yeah. My, my taste in David Lewis personally was towards his earlier, more technical work on convention on language, on semantics. That's sort of the stuff that I was really into. Okay. Because you um, started out with uh, epistemology and philosophy yeah, of language, right? That's right. Okay. That's right. That Those were my expertise. So I got into graduate school with a paper on conventions. Um, and So he uh, might have been the one to accept you. Yeah, that's, as far as I know. Um, and, uh, and, and so... I knew enough about his metaphysical views because I took a metaphysics course. I TA'd for a metaphysics course with Karen Bennett when I was at Princeton. So I knew enough, uh, but it wasn't my thing, right? So like the people who are really into metaphysics and are David Lewis worshipers, they like, it's like a disciple thing, right? Like that people who are like, they know every last bit about David Lewis. They're working on David Lewis metaphysics. There's a very distinctive feel to a paper where you're like, oh, this is a David Lewis type uh, scholar here. That wasn't me. Um, so I was, I was happy to learn about a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, one of the great things about this show is that 
um, it allows me to be the generalist that I am. Like academic philosophy requires you to be a specialist, but I've never yeah. really been that way by by disposition. I've been always been more of a generalist. So I like um, being wider than deep, even though I like being deep, but you know. Yeah, that's how I feel about this show too. I've gotten to talk to a lot of people I, I wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So I, you mentioned that you had about an hour, uh, which is which has been great. Uh, do you have another five or ten minutes? Or yeah, you... go, yeah, please. Okay, cool. Well then, I'm going to ask you some more uh, self-serving questions. Sure, I'd love to. So as, as somebody who's recently gotten into this space, and granted, I don't have to do as much. Uh, technical work as you do how did you become such an expert producer so quickly because i mean even with the first season it's not it's not something well maybe you were making out of your making it out of your garage but it doesn't seem that way i was uh and the answer that i'm going to give you people are really surprised at how specific it is here's the answer the answer is you google ira glass how i work ira gave an interview many years ago, where someone says, how do you do this? <laughs> the thing that you do, right? Interview some people, collect the tape, design out what it's going to, story's going to be and so forth. And he was very specific about it, right down to the pen and the paper and the microphones and like where he goes and then what he does afterwards. Um, and I just followed those instructions in that first year. Great. Okay, I'm really glad I asked you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just followed those instructions. I mean, you can't just follow them because like, you know, the instructions is like require some creative thinking about like the thing that you just, person you just interviewed, how to structure that into a story. But, you know, by the way, it's easier to follow those instructions now because you can get automatic transcriptions now. Even six years ago, I had to do it by hand, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So, so um, I followed those instructions and made a pilot and then i had friends family and other philosophers listen to them and critique them right so basically you need somebody to tell you what you're doing wrong what you're doing boring and what and so forth and you have to and you have to believe that you can do it right so like nobody had ever done what ira does but for philosophy so that was the part that was new right like how do you connect the story to philosophy and if you do all of that the things that's the things that aren't hard is going into a digital audio workstation and like cutting up the interview tape and then like soundtracking it or something like that. If you people think about that's like the production, the sound of the production, that's not that hard. That's something you can okay. learn within a month of like actually doing it, right? The mm -hmm. thing that's always hard, even to this very day, um, and everybody will tell you, is with a bunch of footage how to structure that into a coherent. 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever it is, right? That's the stuff that's an ongoing struggle. The technical thing about like which, you know, DAW to use and then like how do you splice this and you put in room tone, that's, it's like, you know, it, mm -hmm. that's not that, it's not that hard at all. Have there been any particularly challenging moments above, above, uh, every single episode putting it together there are, there are so many challenging moments to doing this um for me at I this think, point the yeah. biggest challenge is 
reaching out to people uh, because it's very hard. I, I mean, to, I mean, yeah, it's just an email. They might not have to read it, but it's hard to put yourself out there and ask people who, you, I mean, like a, a leader in their field. And then the other thing is it's just kind of nerve wracking before sitting, sitting down before every interview thinking, oh, well, what if I fuck this up? But th I guess those aren't the huge challenging moments I was asking about. Yeah, I think that that, that is an indication of you being, of what kinds of things that you are concerned with about yourself and your own and your skills. Everybody mm -hmm. is going to be insecure about the things that they consider themselves weakest at, right? So for you, mm -hmm. it's probably going up to a stranger, like, you know, and then like talking to them. Um, and I do think that that's, that's definitely, so yes, um, I did a show where it required me to do Vox Pop, which is I went to the Brooklyn Public Library and walked up to strangers to interview them. That's not something a yeah. philosophy professor ever does. Mm -hmm. And that was horrible of experience. Yeah. But I'm glad like, I did it. So I know because I make my students do it. So like if they want to produce podcasts, I make students. What was that. horrible about it? Um, Just it approach, felt horrible or were yeah, there, it were felt there horrible. bad things? Okay. There were some bad things, but like people and people say, no, I don't want to talk to you. But like the, the act of walking up to a stranger and asking them if you can ask some questions, a highly unnatural act. Um, mm -hmm. in a social, it's not something that people do. And uh, but other people who are like extroverted and all that, like don't care. Right. Like they mm -hmm. do that all the time. Uh, I, I, I think that that, that that's challenging. Um, I find the writing process very challenging. Um, and I don't mean writing for the philosophy stuff, even though that's challenging too, because I'm not writing philosophy for my peers. I'm writing for people who don't know anything about philosophy. That's challenging, but 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 one thing I'm not really talented at is writing good nonfiction narrative, which some people are really good at. So what's that? Character development, character description, you know, like um, like um, plot hanging up, hanging on plot points for cliffhangers, you know, the kind of thing that you know, we see all the time in fiction writing that people are good at. Like, so I'm not very good at that. So I don't do a lot of it. But the people who do a really good version of that, I really admire. I wish I could be more like them. Mm -hmm. So this is this is one question that I've always liked when interviewers uh, ask people. Now, if you could go back and give yourself some advice when you started, so roughly... Uh, I think this is episode 35, so I haven't like totally started, but there, it still feels like I've, I've, I'm just starting. But what sort of, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, wow. Let me think about this for a second. The advice I would give myself is... You don't have to use that much music. Okay. Number one. Um, it's okay that it feels hard because it is hard and it will stay hard. Um, and I mean, I think what I really needed in the early days was assurance <laughs> that it is that I needed advice about how to do things better because I actually think I was 
there was a certain aspect of the earlier shows which I like more than the newer shows. There was a kind of like novelty to them and energy about them that when you're more experienced, you kind of fall into a pattern that's a little bit less exciting. Yeah. Um, I see that with with uh, some of my favorite musicians. I mean, they're where I don't listen to anything after their first or second album because that's when it was <laughs> yeah. like raw. Yeah. Um, and the other advice I would tell myself is make sure you seek help. So I did seek help, but not having a budget, uh, my excuse was always, I don't have a budget, you know, to get like a professional editor or, or something like that. But, um, that's something that I'm continuously open to because I do feel like Hi-Fi Nation could, I feel, I feel like what the show needs is more people working on it. <laughs> like, like that it's not just the culmination of a, one particular person's way of thinking about stuff. That's what I uh, So I know that you're going to UCR. So congratulations yeah. on that. Have, have, are they in some way like supporting the public philosophy endeavors you have going on now? Yes. So in the sense that unlike at Vassar and unlike anywhere else I could be, <laughs> Um, UCR is going to count my work on Hi-Fi Nation as work, as a professor's work, right? So like whether wow. I get a raise or whether I get promoted, right? It's like it'll count as the same way like a publication would count. That's awesome. And I'm that's, so glad that's, to hear that's that. not something that existed. As mm -hmm. far as I know, it still doesn't exist anywhere else. I'm not well, sure. I don't want to say. Yeah. Hopefully you've normalized it. And in a few years, uh, I'll reap the. That's the, the no, that's the that hope. Labor. That's. That's the hope, right? Yeah, I can't mm -hmm. rely on young people to take that risk, right? So, like, I was tenured when I started the show, so I wasn't taking the biggest risk. You know, I mean, for you, for for you, you're taking a much bigger risk, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, a little bit. Yeah, that's uh, right. Well, okay. The the last thing I'll ask today is, what should we expect for season six? Season six about the future. So, season six okay, is going to have awesome. some futuristic stuff. There's going to be a, there's going to be talk of AI. There's going to be an episode about people who are in love with their AI chatbots. Uh, have people... you, are you going to talk about her? Uh, yeah, it's kind of. I'm going to have to talk about her because that mm -hmm. pre movie. predated this. But really, I'm talking to actual people who are in love with their AI chatbots. Now. Oh, okay. Yeah, and more interesting. So you're going to hear about from them. Uh, we're probably. I'm probably going to do an episode of people who have recreated their dead loved ones, too. Uh, I'm going to talk about the future of animal rights. Like, what would it be like to live in a society where animals have some legal protection, legal rights? Um, and there's going to be, gosh, uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of stuff about the future. Okay, well, I'm really looking forward to that, and maybe we'll be able to talk again about some of those episodes after it comes out. So, thank, thanks Always. a ton for joining me. Yeah, thank you.